episode 36 of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. I hope you've all had a fantastic week. This week, I am extremely excited to have Steve Jackson on the podcast, who is the man responsible for reviving Poltec, who obviously make the renowned uh, EQ that uh, everybody seems to have used the plugin for, and there there isn't well, there is quite a lot of original units. But anyway, Steve went about and um, tried to recreate. Uh, he's an electrical engineer and he went and tried to recreate the Poltec unit and then somehow ended up reviving the, the company. <laughs> um, and in the process, he got uh, managed to speak to Eugene Shank, uh, Shank who was the original uh, founder of Poltec. And um, yeah, it's just an amazing story uh, to hear how he went from a sort of budding enthusiast, although, you know, he's a professional electrical engineer, so he's a bit more than an enthusiast, but it's uh, interesting to see how he went from that to running the company. (laughs) Um, and he talks about some real technical details, actually. I was really keen to get him to speak about some technical stuff. Um, so, you know, actually going through the I'm going to list off some electrical components here and pretend that I know what I'm talking about. So transformers, uh, tapped inductors, which I didn't know a huge amount about, uh, voltage dividers, capacitors, potentiometers, and all things that make me sound like I know what I'm on about. Um, And he talks about what makes uh, the Poltec EQ so special. Um, Just, I mean, I keep saying this, but this is one of, (laughs) it's it's got to be now one of my favourite conversations. I've absolutely loved it. Um, okay, so also my isolated drums this week that I'm sending out are Dizzy Miss Lizzie. So if you're interested in that, you can go to my website, all you need is drums.com, and sign up to get yours. Uh, and that's that. So we'll just dive straight into this conversation. Here we go, Steve Jackson. I am really excited today to be joined by Steve Jackson of Pulse Techniques. Um, thanks so much for speaking to me, Steve. Oh, my pleasure. Um, so could you just start off by telling everybody what's, what's your position within Poltec now? Uh, I am, I guess, president, owner, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Um, we're a, a very small company, um, about five people total currently. Um, so we definitely fit into the boutique audio category. Um, and interestingly enough, that's about the size of the original company uh, back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, so, um, you know, we're, we're very much following uh, in the footsteps of, of the original company. Um, yeah. I think that will surprise a lot of people because Poltex obviously, I, I hope you, I mean, obviously, I hope you don't mind me calling it Poltec. It's obviously Pulse Techniques is the full name and that's, um, kind of been shortened uh, more oh, commonly to Poltec now. Yeah, yeah um, intentionally. It's, uh, you know, Poltec is the brand name and, and the trademark. And, um, you know, that that's what I call it 90% <laughs> of the time. So, um, so it's a, yeah, obviously it's such a well-known, a well-known brand. And the idea that there's only maybe five people working for the company just seems... Uh, it seems mind-boggling. I think that will surprise an awful lot of people. How just how small it is to to have such a huge reputation. Well, it, you know the the reputation of Poltec um, 
I can't take credit for. Um, you know, Gene Schenk and Ollie Summerlin uh, conceived the company back in, in the early 50s. Um, Gene was working for RCA, um, had worked there about 17 years, I believe, and, um, you know, had started out taking uh, electronics classes at RCA Institute. And then after completing his two-year program, uh, was hired by RCA and went on to design uh, wide bandwidth amplifiers um, for for the company and and you know just really developed into a, an incredible engineer, but always had this desire to have his own company and you know to start his own business and so he and Ollie uh, quit quit their regular jobs and and started Pulse Techniques. Uh, in, uh, I believe, 1953, 1954 uh, time frame. Um, and, uh, you know, all the credit goes to Gene. Um, that, that company thrived for multiple decades. And in the early 80s, uh, about 1982, they closed their doors. And um, the only thing I can take credit for is breathing life back into the products, into the company again. Um, that was that was about a 10-year effort on my part, but um, all of the designs that we manufacture are uh, are Gene Shank's original designs, and he was he was really the brains behind the Pultec products. How did you uh, so you uh, did the original germination of you sort of taking over the company start in around early two thousand? Am I am I right in thinking that? Yeah. Um, so it, it, it really didn't, didn't start, um, as me trying to, to bring the company back to life. I was building, uh, you know, my wife and I, um, in 97 had, uh, finally gotten a house that had a, a basement that I wanted to build a studio in. And, um, I had worked as a recording engineer a couple of decades before that, but had gotten out of the business and, and gone to grad school and, um, you know, started working in optoelectronics for Hewlett Packard. And um, I, I wanted to get back into recording, but knew that that wasn't an option for me to go, you know, work for a studio. So I wanted to build a home studio. And of course, I wanted, you know, some great outboard gear and started looking around uh, at, you know, what I could buy. And, you know, Pultex were selling for anywhere from six to $12,000 a piece. <laughs> and, and I knew that wasn't going to be in the budget, but I was a PhD electrical engineer. I thought, you know, I, I ought to be able to hack something together with existing components, you know, find some good audio transformers and, and uh, you know, track down some details about the schematic. And, and so that's really all I started out to do was, was build a couple of, uh, I won't really call them clones, just, you know, similar EQs to, to be able to use in my studio. And um, there were a couple of other guys that I knew that were professional recording engineers. And somehow they ended up talking me into trying to recreate the Poltec. And I thought, yeah, okay, well, you know, we'll give this a year. Well, it, it ended up taking about 10 years. <laughs> And every, pretty much every waking hour, I was still working full-time for Hewlett-Packard, uh, doing research and development in their Fort Collins uh, facilities. And, and so, you know, it was evenings and weekends that 
I would dabble with trying to characterize the uh, the original transformers and try to figure out you know where I could have them made and went through multiple manufacturers um, with all sorts of nightmare stories that I I won't go into here. <laughs> but, um, let's just say that you know manufacturers don't always do um, what what you ask them to do. You know I I tore down the original transformers turn by turn layer by layer and had you know them very well documented and would give that documentation to the manufacturer and they would give me back something that barely resembled what I had given them and <laughs> and uh you know so it, it took a number of iterations a lot of hard work to uh to really get this right but um you know my partners at that time and I had agreed that unless we could do a perfect Pultec clone, it was never gonna see the light of day. That there were already some, I don't wanna say compromised designs, but um, there, there were Pultec clones out there that didn't sound anything like Pultecs. Hmm. And we knew, you know, we had to hit the mark and, and hit it solidly um, in order to be able to, to get anybody to buy the product. So, um, that's that's why it took so long. These these transformers, you know, back in the day, they were designed by, you know, some of the engineers that had designed the radar systems and other sophisticated electronics of World War II, and so you know, these transformers were made in the heyday of of audio transformers, and those companies either were no longer in existence or they no longer manufactured those products. So um, the transformers were were critical, you know, getting, getting those right, you know, that's the heart and soul of a Pultec is that transformer set. Um, so there's just no, um, th there's no other, no other use for, the, for them out there now. So no one else was making them at all. It really was a case of starting from scratch. Exactly. Exactly. And in terms of the, the sort of name company name, at this point, were you even considering the fact that it might go out, it might go out as a product named Poltec at that stage, or were you just what was what was happening in terms of uh, Pulse Techniques as a company and your involvement with it at that point? Well, fairly early on, um, I tracked down Eugene Schenk, um, which was no small task. That um, you know he was no longer living in in New Jersey where Pulse Techniques had been based and. Um, you know, he had, he had retired and moved away and, um, without going into all the details, I did finally track him down and had a phone conversation with him. And the first time I approached him, he really didn't want to have anything to do with it. He, um, I, I don't know exactly what the situation was. I know he was a little bit, at least disappointed, if not bitter about, you know, not being able to sell the company. Um, in the early 80s when he was ready to retire. Um, his wife's health was failing. His partner, you know, was dealing with um, health issues and and they just really didn't want to run the company and they thought they could sell it and they couldn't find a buyer. And so basically the doors just closed and, um, you know, there was no big payoff at the end like, like you would think you would have for a, a company of that stature. Um, and he, he was aware of some of the people that were claiming to be making Pultecs 
and was also aware of the fact that they weren't really hitting the mark. And uh, so when I approached him, you know, it was like, ah, oh, here's somebody else, you know, trying to capitalize off my, you know, my work. And um, I really wanted to partner with him. I, you know, um, by that point, I had kind of gotten obsessed with being able to recreate this thing. <laughs> it was, uh, well, one of my partners basically at the beginning said it can't be done. And that was, that was throwing down the gauntlet. It's like, okay. I'll show you it can't. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, when I uh, when I talked to him, you know, I just explained to him that I, you know, I was working with this and that I had some questions and and um, I don't I don't remember the details of the first call. I just know that he was he was hesitant to engage, and I ended up uh, calling him back a, a few months later with a a question about the tapped inductor. And he, I think he realized at that point that, you know, I was really going to be doing this, you know, in detail that I, I was not going to try to hack something together that I was serious about creating every, recreating every aspect of it. And so he started to share some information and we subsequently ended up having uh, 12 or 14 conversations, you know, on the order of. 45 minutes to an hour each. And, and, uh, I, I think we kind of developed a, a relationship. Um, I ultimately ended up meeting, uh, his family, you know, his, his children and, um, and, uh, you know, met with them and, and actually spent a long weekend with them. And, uh, this was after he had passed away. Yeah. Um, he, um, you know, fortunately, um, he was able to see the first uh, production units, and you know, I sent him photographs. I he was suffering from some medical conditions and and didn't want to meet in person. You know, I'd ask him if I could come out and and do an interview of him for the Audio uh, Engineering Society. You know, for AES mm -hmm. um, to document some of this, and you know, I took copious notes every time I talked to him, but. I was really hoping to be able to get either an audio or maybe a video interview with him. And because of his, his health issues, he said he just didn't want to meet with anybody in person. And, and so I never was able to do that, but he was incredibly helpful. We talked a lot about his manufacturing techniques and about the details of the company. And, um, you know, I, I later learned a lot more from his children um, who actually worked for their dad um, you know, both of his daughters knew how to solder and they would go into, into pulse, you know, when he had a bunch of orders that he needed help on, they'd go in and they'd, you know, do soldering and, and, you know, mechanical assembly and that sort of thing. So, Fantastic. Um, yeah, like, like I said, it was a small operation, but, but very efficient. Um, he had, um, he had friends who, when he would get a big order, uh, they would come in and get a kit of parts, you know, maybe for 10 units and they would take them home and they would assemble them and then bring back the 10 units and, and, you know, Gene and Ollie would test them and pack them and ship them. And, um, so, you know, very much a small time operation, but, um, from, from what I've been able to deduce, uh, 
I think they shipped over 15,000 products. Wow. Um, 15,000 units. Now, you know, that was a lot of different products. You know, some, you know, were, were just passive EQs, but um, I've seen serial number tags up in the 15,000s. And as best I can tell, um, they just use sequential serial numbers. Every box that went out got the next, you know, the next tag. So um, that's, that's unbelievable. I'd read about the engineers building um, the units in their homes, and the idea that they they've got through that many is astounding. <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. But um, you've also got to remember that they were in business from 1954 until 1982, so that's a pretty pretty good stretch of of time. Yeah, it it really is. And do you think, I mean, what do you think was the cause of um, of not being able to sell the company? Were people, you know, 80s is, is around the time when um, sort of valve technology started to become unpopular. And, you know, there's, exactly. you know, the, the um, EMI was switching from the red desks um, over to uh, the TG desks and, um Suddenly, everything was moving away from valve technology. Do you, do you think that's the main the main reason? I think that was a part of it. Um, and Gene had seen that happening and acted on that. He started in uh, early 1970s. He started manufacturing a solid state unit that mm-hmm. used, among others, um, the API 2520. Um, there were there were a couple of other brands of op amp that he used, but they're all that same. Uh, you know, that same topology and, and uh, footprint. So, um, and he actually thought that the solid state units were superior to the, uh, to the tube units. Oh, interesting. Um, but um, I guess it, it just wasn't enough, you know, and, um, you know, he did get one last big order. He had actually, they had actually closed the doors and, and shut things down and, um, they must have still had inventory, and I've, I've not. Unfortunately, I didn't get to talk with Gene about this, but um, I've talked with people who who know Tony Bon Jovi, who owned Power Station in New York City, and basically what happened: Gene had shut things down, and Tony was building, you know, this new studio in in New York, and wanted Pultex in each of the control rooms, and there were. Uh, I believe three control rooms at that time, and he wanted 24, one for each track of the multi-track machine uh, for each control room. Wow. And so, you know, that order alone would be, you know, 75 units. Um, and so, uh, 72. <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, when he, when Tony first approached him, he said, no, no, I'm, you know, I'm done. We're, we've closed the doors and he said it would have to be, you know, a very sizable order. And, and I don't know, you know, chicken and the egg, which came first, whether Tony was originally planning on doing that many, or he just said, if that's how many I have to have to get you to build them, you know, a few, then I'll, I'll be all in. But um, from what I can tell and talking with various people, I think the order probably ended up being closer to 100 because they, they had some MEQ5s in addition to the EQP1A3s. And they also uh, had some spare units. So um, my guess is it was it was close to a hundred units. And so Gene, you know, set set up and and built those units and then closed the door, you know, permanently. 
Wow, what, quite a high to go out on. <laughs> That's really yeah. cool. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I hadn't heard that story. That's really cool. I'm I'm quite interested, obviously, with your um, you know, your experience as a as an engineer, um, sort of electrical engineer. It, I'm I'm curious, just from my own personal interest, about the. So I know that Eugene Schenk started off as a um, at, a, at a point as a TV engineer, and it, what what's the relationship between the way that a, a valve operates in a in a tv from back then and and what how it operates in a unit because it seems to me that a lot of these these electrical engineers from sort of the late 50s or or early 50s into the 60s were familiar with um with radio and tv engineering first right well you know audio amplification analog audio amplification is is you know pretty much the same no matter uh what it's in i mean obviously You've got some some much higher frequencies in a television, you know, in the IF stage, and and uh, um, I honestly don't know a, a whole lot about televisions, <laughs> even though uh, when I was a kid, you know, I would I would help my dad pull all the tubes out of our TV and take them uh, to the store where they had a tester and and plug them all in. <laughs> so I guess I got expo- exposed to vacuum tubes, you know, at a pretty early age, probably eight or nine years old, but, wow. um, you know, obviously at that age, I didn't know anything other than you pulled them out, you put them in the tester, you adjusted the settings to the, to whatever the scroll, uh, told you to set them to, and <laughs> then press the test button. And if it failed, you bought a new one, but, <laughs> um, but I mean, you know, analog electronics is, is, um, you know, not so different, I think between, um, a television and and an audio equalizer. Obviously, there's an audio stage, you know, in the television. So yeah, yes, yeah, of uh, course. Yeah. Um, um, so then, once they'd started Poltec as a as a company, the uh, from the what the reading I've done, it seemed to me that they were starting out really niche with the the units that they were manufacturing. Um, I, I've got one that I've. I mean, I'm I'm out of my depth talking about electronics to this degree, but you know, the Model P1 audio oscillator <laughs> um, seems right. to be the first unit that they built that seemed to. Uh, I mean, that seems incredibly specialized, and they were they struggling to sell those, um, or were they so, struggling to get the the company moving? So actually, um, that you raise a good point. Um, they did not start out the business to manufacture audio equalizers. Um, that, that actually came a little later. Um, they started out the business, um, and I can very much relate to this, having worked for Hewlett Packard for 25 years. Um, they started out building test equipment, uh, test equipment and source equipment. Um, so, a, a variable filament supply, you know, tube filament supply was the first product, I believe. And then they did an oscillator, um, which I actually have the prototype um, oscillator that you just referenced. Mm-hmm. Um, I have wow. that here at, at Pultec. The, the original uh, one? The original one. It wow, has fantastic. like Dymo label, um, you know, it's not even silk screened. It's got are you familiar with the Dymo labeler? Um, it was I can't a say I am, no. strip that you, you rotate 
um, the letter that you want to the to a point on the on the uh, um, device, and then you squeeze the handle, and it imprints that letter. And so you can make you can make labels um, that has an adhesive back. And oh yes, I'm sorry, I know what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. yeah, and I was stunned. I I thought that was a product of the '70s, but clearly, you know, this goes back. Actually, I did a little research on the time of labeler and found out, wow, it was around in the '50s. Um, How cool! But it, anyway, uh, yeah, I have that unit here. Um, unfortunately, it got slightly damaged. Uh, being shipped to me um but uh i have it in the display case here at, at poltec so uh, but anyway getting getting back to what we were discussing um they were they were manufacturing uh you know test equipment and oscillators power supplies that sort of thing and um gene said there were a number of times that they thought that that you know they were going to have to close their doors that it just it wasn't going to go anywhere and he was maybe going to have to go back and try to get his job at RCA again. <laughs> um, but they were persistent and it was really when they came up with this, uh, you know, this first prototype of the EQP one equalizer, um, you know, equalizers in that day were, were all passive. They didn't have a makeup gain. And so you incurred, you know, anywhere from, you know, three to 20 dB of loss anytime you inserted a, uh, a filter of some sort. Mm -hmm. And so Gene, you know, came up with this equalizer that had a makeup gain stage. And his last job at RCA had been to design wide bandwidth amplifiers for, uh, I've forgotten exactly what they called it. it. It was basically an early facsimile machine, a fax machine. Oh. where you could uh over radio waves you could send uh you could send images and so these amplifiers obviously had to be very wide bandwidth and i think gene just you know was so into into doing the wide bandwidth design that he didn't bother with a 20 to 20 kilohertz bandwidth amplifier for his equalizer it, if you look at the uh, the frequency response of a Pultec, it's flat. My audio precision can only go down to 10 hertz, and there's no sign that it's rolling off. So I don't actually know what the low end rolls off at on a Pultec. I don't have anything that can measure it. But even <laughs> on the top end, it doesn't start to roll off until around 60 kilohertz. And so I think that's one of the reasons that they sound so good, because you don't have... You know, if you look at a lot of audio amplifiers, they're starting to starting to drop by 18 kilohertz, and by 20, you know, they're down 3 dB, and and there's a lot of of phase stuff going on with that transition, and you know, that impacts you know the audio spectrum, and so you know with Gene's amplifier, he's flat out to 60 something, and so you know the 20 to 20 is just perfectly flat and um you know that that's just one of the reasons that Poltex sound the way that they do um and if you look at some of the clones you'll see that they don't always do that <laughs> well uh, this is um i think I, I mentioned it in an email to you i, I had a conversation with ivana manley and this is one of the the same points that she brought up about Poltex is is that 
just the the huge amount of headroom on it, and especially with, um, you know, obviously this is not relevant to uh, sort of fifties and sixties, but now we've got plugins doing things, and they they clearly don't have that same headroom. It can't, you know, it's cut right. it's cut right off, um, which is a you know another appeal for I you know I, I don't know whether that's even gonna it's ever going to be able to be emulated or whether we, you know, outboard gear will always persist for that, that very reason. Right. Um, so I mean, sound quality at that, at that time was for, again, from the research I've done was improving anyway. Uh, you know, 78 RPM was, was um, moving aside for 33 and a half and it, or 33 and a third. And it was, it seemed to me that it, as audio quality was, was improving in general um they, they they hit the market at a good time with this eq unit because there was a demand for him so am i right in thinking the first test unit went to mgm in new york and they they loved it which is you know obviously a huge contract for them to have landed exactly uh, ollie summerland who was gene's partner and uh ollie was more like the you know gene was really the electrical design engineer Ollie was marketing and mechanical engineer. You know, he he did a lot of the mechanical layout. Where where do the switches mount, and you know, where do the transformers mount, and and all of that sort of thing. Gene was more focused on the electrical aspects, and Ollie also uh, had worked in a number of recording studios, and so he was the one that had the connection. And if you want the details of that, you can go to the Pultec website. And there's a uh, there's a history there that uh, Gene's son-in-law wrote with Gene. Um, oh. I believe uh, I believe that was like around 1990 that they sat down and and um, Mark just you know completely documented that, and he was kind enough to allow me to post that on our on our website. So, but it walks through you know Gene's whole background of. Um, you know, when he was in high school, he was doing television repair um, and uh, and radio. Actually, I take that back. I, I don't think he was doing repair at that time. He was he was selling radios. Um, I need to go back and refresh my memory on the history. But um, I think but Mark, I think you're right. I've read through it all. He was he was doing radio repair from his parents' house, and this was yes. while he was in high school. It, I mean. Yes clearly <laughs> was like a really gifted guy <laughs> yeah yeah just just really smart and you know convinced his parents to let him go to to new jersey and and uh or new york i guess and and study at the rca institute um and i think back then he i think he went for two years which i believe would probably be close to the equivalent of of a bachelor's degree now i think it was a very concentrated coursework and um anyway um he obviously got sufficient training and then with his 17 years of employment with rca um he was he was definitely well equipped when he started pulse techniques i'm i i there'll be a lot of people listening to to this who will be familiar with poltex whether it's um through a plug-in version or maybe a studio they visited or um, and and there'll be others who who perhaps have them who will know this stuff. But could you, 
in your words, could you give us a brief rundown of, of the EQP1A and why, how it works in terms of, um, you know, in terms of how it sustained uh, its reputation for so many years? Why do people want it? And not necessarily the nuts and bolts of how it works, but in, in, your, in your own words, what you, uh, how you'd explain uh, how it works and its legacy. So um, the it's it's basically um, a passive EQ section. Uh, in other words, um, all all of the components are resistor, inductor, or capacitor. Um, no active components um, to modify frequency response curves, and then that's followed by uh, a line amplifier and. What I think is so cool is just how simple the design really is. If you uh, if you have any electronics background at all, um, you know what a voltage divider is, which is it's just a pair of resistors. One is in series with the incoming signal, and the other one is in shunt or tied, you know, to ground uh, across the output, and the the output is where those two resistors connect. And the ratio of the one that's connected to ground versus the one that's connected to the input determines how much voltage drop you see across that voltage divider. And so the Pultec is basically a voltage divider. It's a uh, an 11 to one. Um, there's a 1K high frequency attenuate pot um, you know, over on the right side of the unit. Mm -hmm. And to the left of that, there is a 10K uh, high frequency boost pot. And those two pots form that voltage divider that drops uh, the incoming signal by 111th. It's the, you know, it's, it's R2 over uh, R1 plus R2. If, you know, if R1's your incoming and and sorry, I don't. I don't mean to get too involved, and especially when you can't sketch it, it <laughs> takes a thousand words to describe it. But, but that is the core of a Pultec. If you if you um, take twenty times the log of that, you will uh, get the the attenuation in dB, which is just under twenty one dB. So it's one. It's twenty times the log of one eleventh, which is. Uh, about 20.8 dB. So the signal coming in is attenuated by that much. And if you were to just monitor that output, you, you just have a voltage divider. <laughs> Gene then took various passive components and placed them around that voltage divider to accomplish the curves that he wanted. So for example, um, if you take an inductor and a capacitor and you use that to bypass the, uh, the series resistor, um, then at a certain frequency, that inductor and capacitor will start to resonate. And at some point, their series resistance, their series impedance is approximately zero. And so it shorts the input to the output and you get the full input at the output stage. <laughs> so, um, that is the peak boost circuit. If you now follow that attenuator with a line amplifier, you say, okay, well, I, I'm dropping 20 dB 
across this divider, I need to bring that back. So you put a 20 dB amplifier following it. Now you get your, your same input back, but when you resonate that LC, you're now actually getting all of your original signal plus the 20 dB that, you, that your line amp is producing. And so you get 20 dB of boost at that, that resonant frequency. Wow. And I won't bore everyone with all the other details of the other circuits, but it's basically a very simple yet elegant design. And the heart and soul of it is the quality of the line amplifier. Um, so, you know, like I said before, he picked up a peerless catalog, which those were the Rolls Royce transformers back in the fifties. And he picked the best output transformer that money could buy. Uh, similarly, you know, his input and interstage transformers on the, on the initial units, they were all peerless. Later, he went to triad for the input and interstage, but the original EQP ones, uh, and some of the very early uh, EQP1As had um, had all peerless transformers, but um, you know they were they were top quality transformers. They were very transparent, yet at the same time, um, you know they they add a little magic that that I have yet to be able to put my finger on. And I've been <laughs> through every component in the Pultec. And I can't tell you, oh, here's the component that makes it sound like a Pultec. It's, you know, it's the culmination of the entire design that makes it sound like a Pultec. There's not, there's not one component that I can point to and say, you know, this is what makes it. Um, I can say if you're missing one component, it doesn't sound like a Pultec. So you have to get every one of them right. And we, you know, the tapped inductor is crucial. We we have those wound to the original specifications. I have the original design documents for the for that component, and we you know we wind them to those original specs. Similarly, you know the input interstage and output transformer uh, are all built to the original specs. We don't cut any corners, and that's why they sound like Pultex. Was there a moment in your? I mean, it's so. Uh, I, I'm really enjoying listening to you talk about it. The, the your passion for it comes across in droves. Um, <laughs> was there a moment when you were recreating it that your that you kind of that magic all came together and you went, I think, I think this might be this might be it. <laughs> um, I guess what I have to say is, long before that, um, there were times that I didn't think. I was ever going to get to the end of the road <laughs> that, that I had to wonder, you know, I'm spending all this time in my basement. I'm, you know, not spending this time with my family, with my children, with my wife. Uh, you know, I'm spending our resources, you know, a big chunk of my, my paycheck coming in from Hewlett Packard is going for prototype transformers. And, and I, I think my wife and some of my friends may have thought an intervention is <laughs> you know because it like I said I had some issues with some of the manufacturers I would you know one in, in particular the output transformer um, I had thoroughly documented how it needed to be wound I got a prototype back put it into the chassis 
and the unit was oscillating at 850, 800 and something kilohertz. And we couldn't get it to, to not oscillate. It turned out that they had made some changes. They'd swapped some windings, you know, some layering, and they had created a parasitic that didn't exist in the original transformer that caused it to oscillate. So, you know, that sort of frustration, you know, there were times that I was almost ready to throw in the towel, but I guess I'm just too stubborn. And <laughs> I, I do remember the first prototype. Uh, so the, the very early prototypes, you know, whenever I had had something that I thought was getting pretty close, uh, I would take them out to Los Angeles. I was working here in Fort Collins and I would take them out to Los Angeles and we had access to uh, Henson recording, formerly A&M. Um, and we would, you know, they had a dozen Pultex in every control room. And so we had lots of references to be able to, to compare to and, you know, incredible listening environment as well. Um, and, um, you know, we'd say, yeah, you know, it's really close, but, you know, this, we, I had a unit that had um, some of the prototype transformers and then it would also have, um, you know, originals. So we could kind of switch back and forth and we would know, okay, this one has um, original input and output, but it's got the prototype interstage. And so we could isolate and, and we would go through that process and say, we're really close, but it's still not quite there. And I'd go back and, you know, back to Colorado and, and work on it for another six months and then bring another prototype out. And yeah, that, that time uh, when we all met at Royal Tone and, and plugged the thing in and we had a vintage unit there and it was like, that's it. We're, we're there. I can't tell the difference. And we had, you know, engineers who had really good ears um, that, that were listening and saying, I can't tell the difference between the two. That, that was kind of the moment that I thought, okay, this, I think it was all worth it. It's finally there. Now we just need to have, figure out how to build them and how to sell them. You know? <laughs> yeah, um, next challenge. Because obviously, you know, I, I couldn't build them myself. That that was not going to happen. So, When you were working on the, the sort of prototype unit, is there much difference between uh, the units that Eugene built um, or his engineers built throughout the company history? Did they change depending on what materials were available at certain times? Um, and did you have a a particular era of unit in mind in that case that you were aiming for? So regarding the EQP uh, 1 and, and 1A, um, the very early units had one type of inductor, and then he switched to another manufacturer um, in, in that early period and stayed with them for, you know, the next 30 years. Um, and we elected to go with the the one um, I had, you know, characterized and and documented both of them, and we decided to go with the one um, that was in the majority of pull text, um, you know, probably in in ninety percent of the pull text. Um, also, uh, we stayed with his decision um, to use the triad for the input and uh, the interstage, and obviously the peerless. Uh, for the output. That's that's the one that has the feedback, the tertiary feedback winding 
And I mean, it really is the heart and soul of the Poltec. The, the other two, you know, contribute, but um, I actually had a, a couple of UTC transformers that came pretty close to the triads, um, but, uh, you know, for the input and the interstage, but, um, and similarly, you know, we had, we tried the peerless and we just didn't see really any differences there. And so, um, like I said, ended up going with the, staying with his decision of the triad for the input and interstage and, and stayed with the peerless for the output. Okay, so there we have it. Part one of my conversation with Steve Jackson. Uh, part two will be coming next week. Uh, there's not really much more else to say. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do that. My email address is joe at all you need is drums. If you'd like to support the podcast by buying a mug, you can do that at my website. There's a link to the shop there. Uh, that just leaves me to say thank you to Joe Kane and David Henshaw for the lovely music and artwork they supply for this. Uh, and I'll be back with you next week with more from Steve Jackson. Until then, goodbye!